Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show. Joining us right now is Nicholas Davidoff. Uh, he has written a book called The Other Side of Prospect, one among many extraordinarily award-winning books. He's going to be speaking for the CAGV, which stands for Connecticut Against Gun Violence 2023 Fall Benefit Luncheon, uh, on Wednesday, 9-13th at 12 p.m. at the Pond House Cafe in West Hartford. He is the author of six books. The most recent one is called The Other Side of Prospect. I'm holding it now, A Story of Violence, Injustice, and the American City. It's gotten a tremendous amount of accolades. It made it to the front page of the Washington Post Sunday Book World. Uh, He has written other books that have also won unbelievable awards. One of them was made into a movie, The Catcher Was a Spy, The Mysterious Life of Mo Berg. Uh, Mr. Davidoff has been a Henry Luce Scholar, a Guggenheim Fellow, uh, all different kinds of awards and accolades, including being a distinguished fellow at Princeton University. And I am delighted, uh, Nicholas Davidoff, to welcome you to the Lisa Wexler Show today. What a privilege for me. Hello. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hi. So shall I call you Nicholas or Nick? What, what, how do you like to be addressed? Uh, you can call me anything, Nicholas or Nikki, usually. Nikki. Not usually Nick. Not usually yeah. Nick. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so Nicholas, the book is, it couldn't be more at home to us here in WICC. The American City in the subtitle of A Story in Violence and Injustice is none other than New Haven, Connecticut. That's right. Um, you know, New Haven is really a, um, as a small city with many big city virtues and problems, New Haven has been seen always by, I think, um, demographers and by historians and social scientists as sort of a representative American city. And even um, I think there was a a recent study of American cities that discovered that New Haven, in terms of its um, just how it fulfills sort of many different kinds of uh, demographic constituencies, is a typical American city. And because it is small relative to um, you know, many other places like New York or, uh, you know, Philadelphia, it's it's more transparent. You can see things that are truly um, substantive issues um, affecting Americans, um, probably with um, more clarity because of its size. So, Nicholas Davidoff, you know, your story, and I want to get to the story about Bobby and about injustice and wrongful incarceration. I interviewed this summer 
well, maybe right before the summer, Maya Moore Irons, who I'm sure you know, she was a great basketball player in Connecticut, and she resigned, sure. you know, she married Jonathan Irons and then wrote a book they did together about his story of having been also a black male uh, jailed wrongly for a crime that he never did and that the people in the justice system knew for years they, that he didn't do. And even after they knew he didn't do it, it took so many years before he could walk out of jail and have his freedom. Uh, and, and these stories appear now, and they appear with, honestly, a tremendous kind of frequency and things that they seem to have in common with each other. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about how you first heard about the story and give us a little bit of an overview of the story itself. Sure. Um... I guess I should back up and just say that I grew up in New Haven, and as a child growing up in New Haven, if, as I did, you played a lot of baseball, that meant you knew the whole city because you, as you advanced through the various age group leagues, you went from different neighborhood to different neighborhood. Um, and one of the things that struck me about New Haven was the juxtaposition between neighborhoods where there were many, many you know, people who are whose families were really struggling, and just across the way, right over there, were, um, were was you know the very best of America, just incredible prosperity. And from the time I was a kid, I just wondered about that and about you know this this you know I grew up and I could quickly see that this was a feature of the whole country that this was that there were all these sort of invisible railroad tracks dividing mm. very wealthy communities from communities where there was significant poverty and I just wondered about a country where there was such stark but also in your face divisions and I wondered what the consequences were and you know I sort of came, came I lived in New York but I came back to where I grew up in New Haven to think about it and there were many, many different ways to, to, you know, engage with such a subject. And I was, you know, sort of moving around thinking about how I would do it because any writer needs not only an idea, but you also need a narrative to take you through the idea. And I got a call one day from a lawyer who said he'd heard about what I was doing and he thought I should meet one of his clients. And, um, I, I went to see this lawyer and he, he, you know, in New Haven, many law firms are in former large houses and his office was in the attic yes. of a, yes. yeah. And so, you know, I went to see him and he, the attic was just full of boxes relating to this one case, wow. which involved a young, a young man named Bobby. And, you know, I was like probably any of your listeners as just someone who would have, you know, was just another person. I didn't have any special expertise in whether, this person really had, as the lawyer was contending, committed this crime and was or was wrongfully convicted. But I was intrigued, and as he gave me lots of you know boxes to look through, and as I looked through all these boxes, it seemed pretty persuasive to me. And um, and so I began to visit this young person who'd gone to prison at 16 for a murder, which again the lawyer said he hadn't committed. And it, it and you know, of course, I was really really interested in the crime itself, but I was more broadly interested as well in how it could be that someone was in a position for this to happen right. and what it might say about how he grew up and where he grew up and all the different forces that complicate and, you know, sort of describe a life. And so I was interested in policing and I was interested in education and, 
you know, the problems that we're talking about, whether it's gun violence or whether it's policing or whether it's um, wrongful conviction, they all sort of work in a kind of circle, right? And they everything relates to everything, unless you understand it in full and in its full complication. I don't think it's possible really to get to the get to the bottom of things and begin to think about how to, you know, sort of improve the broader social problems we're talking about. And then, but you know what happens with chatting with Nicholas Davidoff and the book is called The Other Side of Prospect. But what happens is sometimes when you see that there is contributory blame to go around, then sometimes you look up and you say, well, you can't change everything all at once. So you start to feel a little helpless again. In other words, do you know what I'm saying here, Nicholas? Because I do, I do. There's rarely I, just I think... one culprit. Yeah, go ahead. That's true, but I, just, I, I don't think that just because things are complicated, that means that, and, and even overwhelming, that that means that they deserve indifference. I mm-hmm. think that that means that they deserve a more concerted effort, mm-hmm. and I think it starts with recognition. Uh, you know, I mean, what in effect I was really thinking about was post-industrial poverty. How a neighborhood like the Newhall, Newhallville neighborhood in New Haven, which had been a thriving community for over 100 years for every generation of undereducated arriving immigrants from European and countries like Ireland or Italy or Eastern Europe and then from the American South during the Great Migration. This had always been a sort of an iconic American neighborhood for uplift where people who didn't have a lot of education might not even have had any sort of skill could find, you know, well-paying jobs in factories. And soon enough, they owned cars and houses and were paying tuitions. And this was a sort of, in many people's ideas, this is a great American source of uplift. But when you take away the source of that kind of uplift, when, you know, when there is a post-industrial neighborhood, that's really when, you know, people didn't lock their doors until there were no jobs. And then people locking your doors wasn't enough. So I think that when you begin to think about things in terms of, well, what really can we do with this whole country that's littered with post-industrial communities? Or, you know, how do we really think about guns in a non-ideological way, but as guns being the expression of other things? Um, when I'm talking about guns as sources of violence, not mm-hmm. obviously as sources no, of, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, pleasure or hunting or whatever, you know, people may own guns for. But I, I guess I just feel as though it's crucial to identify problems and then begin to engage with them. And th- this country has always been really, really good when when serious problems are identified, really, really good at engaging with them. I mean, I think, for example, about COVID and how just how many tragedies we are hearing about right away from this mysterious disease and then how many really, really gifted people began to engage and how rapidly things changed. And it was to me anyway, just as a citizen, it was pretty amazing. Pretty and remarkable. I think that, yes. yeah, and, and I think as once as you begin to engage with things that seem like they are problems that just cannot be solved, they seem opaque, they seem just too complex. I think that that's just not in the spirit of what, you know, makes a society like this one, you know, thrive over time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. You know, I'm ch- we're chatting with Nicholas Davidoff, who is going to be September 13th at an event that is all about uh, supporting Connecticut Against Gun Violence, C-A-G- CAGV, in their fall benefit luncheon. Uh, but Nicholas is a New Haven born and bred, and he's written about his beloved city. It's called The Other Side of Prospect a story of violence, injustice, and the American city. And as I'm listening to, listening to you, um, Nikki, I'm listening to you about the upheaval of post-industrial America and how we're still feeling the effects of that. And I'm thinking to myself that I feel like right now we are entering into another post-industrial shudder, which is the AI revolution, which in some in so many ways, just like the industrial revolution, will have a capacity to change things for the better and for the worse, and uh, and I I feel like there will be perhaps another upheaval. Only this time, instead of white collar jobs, I mean, pardon me, blue collar jobs, it's going to be the white collar jobs. And you're such a brilliant thinker. I wonder if you've started thinking about that. Well. I guess as a writer, you know, selfishly um, and self-involvedly, I just immediately, when it, when it comes to things like AI, I immediately want to reassert the value of human enterprise, human creativity, and the human imagination. And that as much as I admire all kinds of different technological innovations and, you know, notice through time how much improvement, as you say, there have been in human life and existence when new things are created – I always notice that along with it, there is no replacement for the beauty and also the significance of real creativity. Mm-hmm. And um, so I guess that's where, that's, where, that's where I really begin. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that, that too. I'm I mean, very hopeful I mean, you're, that you're, in the you're end, a it's the human. A judge. Yes. You're a lawyer and a judge. And I, I, you know, what could be more persuasive than the actual physical presence of someone standing and advocating for somebody and the Mm -hmm. idea that sure you could bring together many many different prior forms of advocacy and create sort of a i don't know you know what i'm saying you could create sort of an automaton who was the advocate for this particular case but nothing i mean in my mind anyway can replace presence and thoughtfulness and energy and just creative responsiveness in any given moment. And, um, and to me, that's what is moving, and that is what moves a people. Yeah, I happen to agree with you very much so. And I'll even take it one step further. I am the kind of a judge who doesn't take much on the papers. I'm, I'm not a on-the-papers judge. I'm known for being a judge who, even throughout COVID, with a very, very rare, tiny exception of time, held my hearings in person, um, I actually believe in the in the impact 
of and the significance of nonverbal communication of someone's physical presence in a courtroom and watching body language and looking at a lot of different things. So I happen to agree with you. There's no substitute for the human element, but I think I, I think that also as that relates to the broader subject of what we're discussing, mm-hmm. I think I would say that communities in general and cities fall into real problems when people don't engage with their neighbors, mm-hmm. when that's how assumptions get made and how you fail to individuate among people. And I think that real on a community level, always um, you can see it over time. Mistakes are made when people make decisions about how change should be effectuated without actually talking with the people who the change will influence and whose lives will diverge from how they've been living. Um, And there's such a long history of this that even the most well-intended people who don't engage and help people to participate in what will be sources of community change, that's where you run into problems. And that's true whether you're talking about any kind of controversial, you know, subject, whether it be poverty, whether it be inequality, whether it be gun violence, all these things are charged and they really matter to people. I mean, nobody's for gun violence, nobody's for poverty, but people have very, very divergent views on how, you know, how to go forward and make changes and improve things. But unless you talk with the people who are actually exist in terms of these problems, that's, I think, when mistakes get made. And that's also how they perpetuate. I mean, it's amazing to me as you go throughout this country when you see neighborhoods that are right up against other neighborhoods. And they often, there's like, maybe maybe you're familiar with William Maxwell, who is a great 20th century American novelist. And in one of his books, he described, he's from Illinois, and um, he later became the New Yorker's fiction editor. But he's always going back in his books to describing you know, the small, small town in Illinois where he grew up. And he describes a street where it divides between the wealthy white neighborhood and a poor black neighborhood. And it describes what, what really is an ongoing American dynamic, which is a kind of a, a glass wall that exists where one side, the impoverished black side, can, can see everything that's going on on this other side of the hill. Well, the, well that, 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 again, other side of the hill can't see back. And I mm. guess I just mean it is more than seeing. It's also really engaging, and that's how things change. And um, I wouldn't say that I'm different from anybody else in the sense that I'm sure I haven't seen many, many things in my life. But I did consider it growing up in New Haven to be a kind of privilege in this country because you were forced to see whether you intended to or not. And if you're on a baseball field with all kinds of people and you're moving from neighborhood to neighborhood, that just forces you to take in um, what otherwise it might be easy to look past. And well, so I'm off people- Let me ask you a question. Do you think that sure. the people at Yale University, do you think that they see New Haven? So I don't think that there's any malice in places like Yale or the many other American universities, which, you know, have sort of a similar community dynamic. I'm thinking of anything from the University of Pennsylvania and West Philadelphia to Johns Hopkins and Baltimore or My Duke or, by the way, my <laughs> alma mater. Or, you know, or the University of Chicago. I mean, they're fairly it's a fairly similar dynamic. Yeah. I don't think it's that people willfully um, come with malice, I do think that there's also a distinction between people who work for universities and are caring people who go out into communities and try and improve their communities, and also people who are just really busy people and who are going about their lives. Um, But I do think that, you know, it is a, 
it, I guess I think very briefly that major universities are nonprofit institutions, which were typically created as um, typically created as institutions that are supposed to exist to improve um, improve the public good, right? And most of them began as local institutions if they're if they're old universities like Yale. And I just think that you know if you're not really engaging with the problems in your backyard and trying to think hard about how to make it better. I just don't think that that reflects particularly well on you as an institution. Mm. And I don't know who, you know, who makes these decisions and so forth. I mean, you know, these are enormous now, incredibly wealthy institutions. And so that makes them, that makes pointing them in the direction that maybe they haven't always gone um, more difficult. But it just seems to me that this is not only a worthy subject of, among other things, research and solution finding, but it's also it's also just it's it's a win for you. I mean, it's 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 your in your enlightened self-interest to make the community immediately around you better. I mean, Yale did such wonderful things in terms of COVID, which we talked a little bit earlier. Just so many people at Yale were so engaged and helped advance a, a really a world cause remarkably. And I just I just think, um, it, it, you know, if you can do that and do it so well. Why not do more for the people who are struggling, who are just sort of steps away from you? Nicholas Davidoff, um, I feel like I'm going to have to go to some of your lectures. I, I love the way you express yourself in writing and on the show. I do hope that you'll come back on. Uh, this book is beautiful. It's masterfully written. It's compelling. It's called The Other Side of Prospect, A Story of Violence, Injustice, and the American City. And I feel like we have barely touched the surface of what we could talk about. I was on the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Commission for a number of years and had a front seat into the rewriting of our criminal justice laws with respect to juveniles. And we haven't even touched on that yet. So maybe you'll come back on and we'll keep the dialogue going. I know that you're going to be uh, September 13th. And the paperback, by the way, of this is going to be released on September 5th. I'm holding the hardcover. You can get it in paperback. But on September 13th, you'll be at the Pond House Cafe uh, to support the good work of the CAGV, Connecticut Against Gun Violence. I want to thank you for being such an involved and, and informed and um, passionate citizen here in Connecticut. We appreciate you. Oh, thanks for all those really kind things you said, and thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. I hope you're going to come back. Nicholas Davidoff on the Lisa Wexler Show. We'll be right back. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com. 